Chapter Two of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Two Father and Daughter. Fairview was one of those places which suggest at a glance old established respectability and a long line of ancestry, a race that has taken deep root in the soil. It was not a grand house or a show house. It had a snug and even homely air, as of a house meant to withstand the ravages of time and weather, rather than to show off its architectural beauty under an Italian sky. It was a Tudor house, with heavy mullioned windows, huge central chimney-stacks and many gables. It was a long, low house, with a broad terrace in front of it, and below the terrace a stiff Italian garden, with a round pond and fountain in the middle, and beyond the garden a fair expanse of undulating green sward, richly timbered. The pond and the fountain were as old as the house, and the goldfish that splashed about in the water were popularly supposed to be of the same date, and to have seen Queen Elizabeth when she spent a night at Fairview in one of her royal progresses. There were people of a radical turn of mind who disbelieved in Queen Elizabeth's visit to Fairview, but there was the old carved oak bedstead which had been set up for her a special accommodation, and there were the cramoisy satin curtains, faded to a dull brick dust hue, which had sheltered her august person from the night air. Time had toned down every colour inside and outside the good old house to mellowest half-tints. Brick and stone had assumed all those varying shades of purple and grey, red and brown, which time and the lichen tribe give to old houses. There had been no restoration or renovation, but all things had been kept in exquisite order from the beginning of time, for the Courtenays were one of the most respectable families in the county. Nobody had ever been able to say that the Courtney estate was dipped. No one had ever hinted at an undue felling of timber. The small park, or chase, as Sir Everard preferred to call it, could boast some of the finest trees within fifty miles. The home farm was a model of advanced farming, every cow a picture, every cart-horse worthy of a prize medal. Even the pigs were the aristocracy of the porker tribe. The Courtenays were not among the wealthiest of the land, but they had never been poor. That was their great merit. From the time when Jasper Courtney, the lawyer, chosen companion and favourite of Francis Bacon, bought the old monastic lands of Fairview for a song, until this present day, there had been no reprobate or prodigal to tarnish the family shield or to diminish the estate. These Courtneys, a younger branch of the good old Devonian family tree, had thriven and flourished in their Daleshire home. They had married always respectably, sometimes profitably, they had affected the graver professions, and had won fame in the Senate and on the bench, rather than in the more adventurous careers of soldier or sailor. They had been men of considerable culture, handing down a certain pride and stateliness of mind and mien from sire to son, as if it had been a tangible heritage. They had for the most part married late in life, and had not left large families, and now the race of the Fairview Courtenays had dwindled to two persons, Sir Everard Courtney and his only child, Dulcie Bella, otherwise and always known as Dulcie. Tonight, while the north-east wind was stripping off the ruddy beech leaves and bending the long level branches of the cedars, the low-ceilinged panelled parlour at the end of the house, looking out upon dark shrubberies, 
was the picture of homely old-fashioned comfort it was dulcie's room the room where she had studied with governess and masters during the studious period of her life and where she was now sovereign mistress free to improve each shining hour like the bees or to waste her time like the butterflies just as inclination prompted the old furniture had been enlivened by various modern luxuries and elegancies in accordance with dulcie's taste the black oak chimney-piece presented a kaleidoscopic variety of colour pots and pans cups and saucers and platters of dulcie's painting or dulcie's purchasing gleamed from the sombre old woodwork enriched with many a garland and festoon by the chisels of dead and gone carvers there were two old ebony cabinets crowded with toys and crockery of dulcie's collecting the chair covers were of dulcie's working and blossomed all over with woodland and meadow flowers on a drab ground for she was as dexterous with a needle as with pencil here in front of the broad square window stood dulcie's piano a modern antique in ebony and brass sir everard's last new year's gift to a daughter for whom he deemed nothing too beautiful or too costly two pictures and two only adorned the dark dull walls one the portrait of dulcie's mother the other a striking likeness of sir everard courtenay at nine and twenty years of age he was now fifty in front of the wide old fireplace where the logs were burning merrily stood a little jimcrack table and on the table a silver kettle and quaint japanese tea-service all red and yellow dulcie had been making afternoon tea for her father and a visitor and now tea was over and her father was sitting in the big armchair on one side of the hearth with the visitor opposite while dulcie herself sat on a low stool in front of the blaze which glittered and sparkled upon the pale gold of her wavy hair she sat looking at the fire with her lovely blue eyes the bluest and sweetest eyes that morton blake had ever looked upon this was her twentieth birthday but the girlishness of her slender form and the childlike innocence of her countenance gave the impression of extreme youth a stranger would have thought dulcie at most sixteen her life had been so sheltered and protected so free from worldly care and all the hard bitter knowledge which worldly care brings with it that the passing years had left no impression on the fair young face she was as frank and girlish in mind and manner as she had been seven years ago in her nursery time had brought her new graces and accomplishments without taking from her this supreme grace of a childlike simplicity this was her birthday and she was spending it quietly and gravely sitting at the feet of the father who idolized her and whose love she returned in fullest measure there was a reason why dulcie's birthday should never be marked by festivity or rejoicing of any kind it was the saddest day of the year for sir everard courtenay for close upon the stroke of midnight on that never-to-be-forgotten twentieth of october and within an hour of her baby's birth his young wife had died they had been married little more than a year lady courtenay had been one of the belles of the county the daughter of a duke's younger son and a bishop's portionless niece with no fortune but her lovely face and richly gifted nature sir everard had won her against a host of rivals and he had been an adoring husband and after little more than a year of wedded happiness sunshine without a cloud as those who judged had best known husband and wife death had snatched her from him 
and he had been left alone in a blank and desolate world, for at this time he counted the baby daughter as nothing. "'He'll marry again,' said society, as represented by the parents of marriageable daughters. "'So good-looking, and in the prime of life. Of course he'll marry again. It would be absolutely sinful if he didn't.' Sir Everard disappointed society, and especially the mothers of attractive daughters, by leaving England the day after his wife's funeral. He led a roving life in the wildest part of Europe for the next seven years, while Dulcibella was waxing lovely and sagacious under the care of a married aunt in a far-away Welsh vicarage. And then he came home all of a sudden and went to look at his daughter. She was a childish image of his dead wife, and that set his wounded heart bleeding afresh. But she was so fair and so loving that he grew by degrees to find comfort in her innocent companionship. And after spending an idle summer among the Welsh hills, whipping romantic waters for trout, reading and brooding in fair solitudes, he said one day, "'Dulcie, we'll go home, and you shall keep house for me and make my life happy.' He carried out this plan to the letter. The seven-year-old baby was practically mistress of Fairview. The life he lived was the life Dulcie liked. His garden, his stables, his hothouses, all were regulated to please that girlish fancy. The servants were referred to Dulcie for orders. Dulcie had a governess and governed the governess. If the child had been of a selfish disposition, she would have grown up an execrable tyrant. But as she had a nature of inexhaustible sweetness, she only grew preternaturally grave and wise, with a childish old-fashionedness that was delightful. And so she grew, and flourished and blossomed, under her father's eye, growing nearer to his heart every day, learning every accomplishment that could minister to his pleasure, soothing him when he was weary, amusing him when he was inclined to be gay, and reading to him, writing his letters when he was lazy, nursing him when he was ill, more devoted than one wife in a hundred or one daughter in a thousand. They lived very much by themselves, this father and daughter, mixing in county society only so far as they were obliged. Sir Everard liked to be alone, and Dulcie liked whatever he liked. They went abroad together every summer, and all the rest of the year they lived in the good old house, of which Dulcie never tired. The quiet winter evenings by the fireside, with book or drawing-board, work or music, never wearied her. To be with her father was perfect happiness, and who need seek variety in perfect happiness? She and her father had the same tastes, the same inclinations. They both loved art and music. They both had a passion for books. There were books everywhere at Fairview, books in every variety of rich and sombre and delicate binding. Sir Everard and his daughter were connoisseurs in bindings, books in their homely cloth or paper covers, waiting promotion upon merits. Dulcibella had read much and wisely for a young woman of twenty, but not all the books in the Bodleian would ever have made Dulcie strong-minded or blue. Culture left her simple and natural as a child who has never learned its alphabet. Culture with Dulcie meant verily sweetness and light. Of late there had been one very constant visitor at Fairview, a visitor who now ranked almost as a member of the family. This was Morton Blake of Tangley Manor, 
who had met Dulcibella two years ago at a flower show, and fallen in love with her on the spot. At least this was what he told her six months afterwards, when after meeting her everywhere she went, and calling at Fairview as often as he decently could, he asked her to be his wife. Dulcie told her father of this offer, and confessed her willingness to accept it, as freely as she had told him her every thought and fancy hitherto. But for the first time in her life she found that indulgent father opposed to her. He would not hear of Morton Blake as a husband for his daughter. He had no specific objection to offer to the match. The man was fairly well-born, very well-bred, good-looking, well-off. Sir Everard could only say, "'He is not the man I should choose for you. If you wish to please me, you will not marry Morton Blake.' For a daughter who so loved, and had been so beloved, this expression of a father's desire was enough. "'Then I shall not marry him, dear father,' she said, and she never more mentioned Blake's name, though he contrived to force himself upon her presence several times, and urged his suit with passion and persistence. But the father saw his child's cheek grow pale, and her eye hollow. He saw a hundred signs and tokens, not willingly betrayed, of growing unhappiness. And one evening, when they had been sitting by the fire for a long time in pensive silence, he drew Dulcie onto his knee and turned the sweet, sad face towards the lamplight. "'My dearest pet, you are unhappy,' he said. "'It's nothing, papa. It will pass away.' "'My own dear love, answer me truly. Does the happiness of your life hang upon this marriage with Morton Blake?' She trembled slightly and turned deadly pale, but she answered as honestly and fearlessly as she had answered her father's every question hitherto. "'I'm afraid it does, father. I have tried to forget him. I have tried to put the thought of him out of my life. But I can't do it.' "'Then you shall marry him,' said Sir Everard. End of chapter 2